Blaze Radio presents Heat Heat Check. Alright, this is Heat Check. We're back. Release the press release. Uh, Gabe Schwartz, Peyton Gallagher. It's been a minute since we talked to you last. Gabe, I think we owe the five people in the viewing audience, including your grandmother, the due of telling them where we've been for the last month or so. Um, so, I mean, we haven't done a show since I believe December 5th. Um, so it's been a good month. Uh, I am still in Kansas, haven't returned for the last semester of our collegiate careers. Um, and we've just, I guess we've been up to, up to no good to put it frankly, um, watching games. Shenanigans. Uh, No, I mean, we're being productive, but also taking some time to hang around with some people and uh, catch up and and do all that while also intaking some college football, some college basketball, um, exchanging texts about games with you. But we haven't we haven't really gone into things on the podcast for a while. So back and, and on our way for our last semester here. So. I, I've been busy too. Uh, we, we've called games in a lot of different states. I believe it was in the month of December. I broadcasted a game in four states, I think. Four games, four states sounds about right. Uh, Alabama, South Carolina, Arizona, and Las Vegas. So Nevada. Uh, so we've been busy. There's been good reason why we haven't been able to sit down and do a pod, but it's about time we got back into it. And no better place to begin than with the national title, which is only a couple days away. I never got why the game was played on a Monday, but it is. Uh, And it will be played this upcoming Monday. Alabama, Georgia. Alabama debunked a lot of the mysticism around this Georgia team about how dominant they had been in the SEC title, blew their doors off. Georgia came back and threw a knockout punch to Michigan ending their season pretty much from the opening whistle. Alabama dispatched Cincinnati, and here we are again. What we've expected to have happened pretty much since the word go this season, since we figured out, you know, Alabama is a growing team, but it's still Alabama, and Georgia is one of the all-time defenses. Gabe, initial thoughts on this matchup? Well, I guess my initial thoughts go back to New Year's Eve, um, and watching the two playoff games play out. And my overwhelming thought that as we got the playoff matchups, uh, we got the wrong team to match up with Alabama. Um, And that if Michigan had played Alabama, I think that game would have been more competitive than Michigan versus Georgia because Michigan was good at doing the things that Georgia is really good at combating. Um, and that's what played out in the Orange Bowl. So it, it didn't necessarily surprise me uh, the outcome of what happened, and it didn't surprise me that Michigan got into an uphill battle and just kind of let go of the rope or, or had the typical thing that happens to the, happens to teams when they play against Georgia, which is you get dominated in that last two minutes before the first half ends, um, and it, it gets away from you. Um, that's kind of what I foresaw happening and that's kind of what did happen and the the Alabama Cincinnati game which gets which was not competitive um all that much in comparison to um 
or wasn't viewed as going to be as competitive of a game because obviously Cincinnati is a group of five team and is not someone that people would anticipate matching up well with Alabama. I actually thought Cincinnati, like all things considered hung in there. I didn't think that the offensive play calling um, was aggressive enough to match the moment of realizing how, uh, outmatched they were and how much of an uphill battle it was going to be. And and if you're in a position like that, you have nothing to lose. So you need to be more aggressive. And I thought Cincinnati was relatively uh, unenthusiastic in the way that they play called offensively. And Alabama had the answers in getting in the passing lanes pretty quickly with Desmond Ritter and all the batted passes and all that. But an SEC versus SEC uh, national championship again is kind of, it's becoming the norm. It's becoming something that's usual. And if it's not an SEC versus SEC, Ohio State or Clemson, more more often than not, Clemson tends to be in that game. So, like, this is not surprising. It also is is probably the two best teams in the country. But I think the one thing that stands out to me most as I listen to people talk about this game and as we prepare for Monday night and getting set to watch this game is I think we're doing a little bit of revisionist history on what this Alabama team was like all year and for making them a better team than they were in reality. And the thing that I think stands out to me the most, as I continue to think about this, and I think you probably will disagree with me on this, but I, I continue to harp back on the longer that we watch these, these playoff games is that the reason that the semifinals have typically been uh, so lopsided, not only just because of the talent, I will understand that the talent gap uh, is at a different level with these SEC teams, but when you combine the talent level, the talent gap in recruiting stars and all of that, and you give Nick Saban three and a half weeks to prepare, it's going to get ugly. So the, I think the, we do not need to have the debate of like, do you want to go to eight teams or whatever, or do you want it to just be one game of, of two teams back in the BCS model. But I think that the value of going to eight games is in playing more games. You give a guy like Saban, a guy like Kirby smart, a guy like Dabo Sweeney or, or Ryan day, any of these guys, you give them less time to prepare and you don't allow, uh, you have to find quicker answers because I I think frankly, what we're seeing is that when you give three and a half weeks to Nick Saban, it's like if we gave Bill Belichick three and a half weeks and then he only had to win two games, I think he would find a lot of the answers and the the coaching would matter even more. And I think that that is understated when everyone's like talent, 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 talent. It's like the coaching matters too. And giving someone three and a half weeks to prepare yeah. for, for the main test of the year, like, of course he's going to ace that thing when he's matched up with Luke Fickle. I think that we need to unpack a couple points that you made there because one of them is very accurate and apropos, which is that this Alabama team was not what we seem to think of them all so long. Perception did a total 180 when they throttled Georgia the way they did. By the way, a game that they were losing by two scores early until they busted a long touchdown and kind of broke the thing open. Georgia has still dominated every single game they play this year defensively, right? And we're doing so early against Alabama. The wheels came off. They got blown out. And I think that we have, because there were 
so many different moments throughout the season in which we just said, well, I guess we're going to find out when they play each other in Atlanta that we probably took a little bit too much away from that. And it's going to be fascinating to see what Kirby Smart and his staff, especially with like half his staff, one foot out the door with Dan Lanning heading to Oregon, what they can do to adjust from that. How much of Georgia's result in that game was complacency oriented? Um, but you make a good point. Alabama, with time to prepare, it doesn't matter who the assistants are, has a very good track record. They've been got a, caught a couple times, whether it was a national championship where they came out flat in Santa Clara and got beat pretty badly by Clemson or, you know, the Ohio State Sugar Bowl. It's happened before. They've been beatable in these games. But the fact of the matter is that Alabama has played now in nine of the last 13 national championships. Let that sink in. Nine of 13. There have been different kinds of quarterbacks. There have been different assistants. The one constant is obviously Nick Saban, and that's why he is the greatest of all time. But I will also say, I think it's a big deal for George to get a second shot at them. In the past, whether it was last year, the, the week four game that Georgia got blown out in Tuscaloosa, or it was SEC championships or the national championship game that they played uh, in, I believe that was 2019, because people forget that Auburn represented the West in the SEC championship that year, not Alabama. This is the first time under Kirby Smart that these teams will have played twice in a single season, and Georgia is going to have a better picture of what they're going up against. And by the way, Alabama offensively is a different team than when they played Georgia in that game because they do not have John Mechie. Everybody points to Jamison Williams. Good reason. He's got 1,500 receiving yards the season, up over 20 yards a catch. But a lot of what he's allowed to do is made possible by John Mechie, who did the dirty work. Despite not being the team leader in receiving yards by over 400 yards this season, Gabe led the team in catches by 20. So I think that's going to make Georgia's life a lot easier defensively. And I, the other big question to me becomes, okay, Brian Robinson, who is he? He was pretty much banged up the entire season, had a lot of hype coming out of IMG. This was his time to take the backfield. And against Cincinnati, healthy, ran all over him, over 200 yards. They actually, I have to imagine this is the first time this season. I don't know this for a fact but in the semifinal that Alabama outran what they threw for. And you're not going to do that against Georgia. You're just not. So I actually think Georgia's got a really good shot in this game, despite the fact that when you look at the matchup in a vacuum, go down the checklist of things that are important. Who's been there before? Alabama. Who's got the better quarterback? Alabama with the Heisman Trophy winner. Who's got the better coach? They've got the greatest coach of all, all time, Nick Saban. I just think that this thing portends to look a lot closer to what we hoped it would in Atlanta to what it actually did in Atlanta. Yeah. Like they, they're not going, there was a cheat code or a Trump card in the cotton bowl against Cincinnati where you can hand the ball off and you could get 7.8 yards per carry with Brian Robinson. They can't do that against Georgia. And the, thing that we didn't we didn't think was going to happen when they played Georgia in the SEC championship game was that they were we didn't think that they were going to throw the ball around the yard as well as they had because teams like Auburn had stopped them and uh, maybe that was us not giving enough credit to Auburn's defense 
and Auburn's ability to stop people because they were pretty good this year and they they did well against Ole Miss and they did well against other pretty stout passing attacks. So maybe we underestimated Auburn's ability there. But Mechie B now is like huge. And I I I I don't know. I feel like I feel like we're doing too much recency bias with these last two Alabama games because we're almost forgetting that they could have lost to Auburn in that four overtime game. And they could have just not been in this situation at all. And now everyone's like, Oh, they're, they're the overwhelming number one, because we do this thing where we go three weeks, we don't see them play. And then we, we see them play and they win by three touchdowns and in no sweat, they make Desmond Ritter look pretty pedestrian. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and, they had the answer to run the ball because frankly, I thought Cincinnati's defensive backs held up pretty well. Like I thought Kobe Bryant. Yeah, awesome. They've got the best duo of corners of the country. Like yeah. this is the one place on the field where Alabama will face less resistance than they did in the semifinal is going to be in the secondary. But at the same time, they're going to have to do that without Mechie. And yeah, I don't know if Jamison Williams is going to be able to catch 67 yard touchdowns again and and i think that i i I don't know i i think that they they played georgia in the one game this year that truly did not really matter to georgia like sure you i'm not i understand that guys want to go undefeated all of these types of things but you can't simulate uh you can't fake urgency and there was no urgency for georgia because they lost and they knew they were still going to be in because they were so dominant all year long and then we get them against michigan and Frankly, they had every answer for anything that Michigan did. And I thought I thought Michigan tried to go side to side offensively way too much. Yeah, you're not gonna outspeed Georgia. Yeah, like Georgia's defense, Georgia's linebackers move too quickly to do what they were trying to do. Um and they had to get McCarthy the ball because they had to do the thing where they get him their his five to eight touches per game. Um and McNamara is just not a big enough playmaker to like. Michigan had the pieces to beat an Ohio state team. That was not defensively what it typically is. It did not have the pieces to be what Ohio state has been in certain playoff games. So it was more of one of like, frankly, they beat one of the worst Ohio state teams of the last decade to get to the big 10 championship game, to get to the playoff. And, and then it looked like it. So I don't think that the who's who and in college football has really changed. Um, I, I, I think I lean toward Georgia winning on Monday night. Wow. Okay. I'm not willing to quite go there yet. I would love to see it. And I, I think we should dive into some of the significance just legacy wise that's involved and cooked into this game. Cause it, it creates a, a whole extra level of intrigue above the field, but I don't know. Again, you know, I simplified it. I said, who's got a better quarterback, Alabama, who's got the better coach, Alabama, and, like, at the end of the day, most of the time, that gets it done. Almost all the time, that gets it done. It's why Brady and Belichick were able to reel off however many Super Bowls they did. It also shows that you can't get beat on a given day. And I think that it would be such a movie to have Stetson Bennett go out and ball in this game. And he's got the demeanor, too. This Alabama secondary can be picked on. And that's been proven throughout the year. They started to play better as of late, but it can be done. I think that for Georgia, the emphasis early is going to need to be, and I know you hate this, but ball control. Keep that defense fresh, keep them off the field, and establish the run early. 
so that later in the game, you've got that extra run action, play action element of your offense a little bit more available to you. And I think the other thing I got to do, get your tight ends, whether it's Darnell Washington, whether it's Stock, uh, um, why am I blanking on the dude's name? He's literally the best tight end in the country. Um, this is really good from us. Bro, isn't it Brock's? Yes. Uh, really great. Really yeah. Good. We're going to verify this because if we're going to look foolish, we're at least going to get it right. The graphics school will tell you. Brock Bowers. Brock, Brock Bowers. Bowers. Yes. I was like trying to call him like stock Bowers in my head. And I was like, that is not correct. Uh, I'm glad New Year's Eve they were showing him running up hills in California. Yeah, he's a menace. True freshman. Um, he is a guy that can really take advantage of the fact that Alabama doesn't have freaky athletic coverage linebackers. Toa Toa, Christian Harris, they're really good players. They're more oriented towards the run. That is an area where I think Georgia could do better attacking them in the passing game. George Pickens is healthier. And I think that matters a little bit too. You don't think we see any JT Daniels in this game, right? No. No? No. I don't. Okay. Because I think George is going to be as competitive or more competitive than they were in the first first matchup. And the only way we get to JT Daniels is either injury or the Jalen Hurts to a situation where it's like break glass in case of emergency. But I think to a – was more of the unknown. And, and, and honestly, if, if, if Georgia goes to JT Daniels, it's like Saban would know what it's, it's not, if anything, you're losing mobility. Like Stetson Bennett can kind of scoot. Yeah. So for sure. I I would would argue JT is a more dynamic downfield passer, but this offense has been fine with Stetson. And I don't think Georgia's winning this game based on downfield passing. I think we'll need to hit a couple. Yes. Alabama is going to put up points, and they will have to have moments where Stetson Bennett does more than just not lose them the game. I think he's capable of that. I think that's been a misnomer all year long, that he is a guy that can't necessarily win a game for you. I think that he can. Um, you know, there still is here and there those moments where it's like, what are you doing? He can maybe have one of those in this game. He can't have multiple. The I mean, throws, he was back through coverage late over the middle can't happen. He was great against Michigan. Yes. And then in the second half, there was a throw that he was on the run, getting chased, rolling out to his right. And he goes back over the middle of the field like he's playing Madden, trying to hit his check down and slices the ball across the field. It should have been picked. And those are the plays that, assuming that Georgia doesn't just pounce on Alabama early, are going to be costly. He can't do that. Yeah. Um, I, I think that George is going to have to run the ball effectively. And was that painful for you to say, was that painful for you to admit? No, no, that's watching the game of football through the prism of what is smart for certain teams to do is different than what is smart for other teams to do. Through the prism of Patrick Mahomes. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way of translating it. Um, I, they're going to have to run the ball effectively and they would be well suited to keep their defense fresh so that they can pass rush late against Bryce young. Um, I don't Alabama won the sec championship game by 17, but I feel like this game is going to be much closer than that. Yeah. 
I don't see an outcome in which it, it isn't close at all. For Georgia, trying to win their first national championship in 40 years, Kirby Smart has been unable to beat his sensei, Nick Saban. He's had plenty of opportunities, has not gotten it done. Do you think that this team, A, has a better chance than the one that lost in overtime on second and 26? And B, do you think Kirby is any kind of a, a, a coaching liability specifically in this matchup? Not in general because he's one of the best, but in this matchup, does that concern you at all versus Nick Saban? No, because I don't think that – I just don't believe – I don't subscribe to the theory that Georgia lost the SEC championship game because of something that Kirby did. Um, I I think that the 20 – that would have been 2018 national championship game uh, the 2017 season, the fact that we did not see Alabama play Georgia in the regular season that year honestly makes me feel better about this one than the last one because Georgia not winning the first time around, like it's stupid to say like it's, it's hard to beat a good team twice, but I, I think that there's something to that and I, I don't think that Saban with a week to prepare uh, in this situation is going to just be able to fix everything and, and be able to, because I think that this comes down to is Alabama going to score 41 again? And I don't think that they're going to like, we're acting as if Alabama has been this offensive juggernaut all season long. And there have been multiple stretches in which that they struggled and they struggled at times against Cincinnati too. And I think George is going to be able to get pressure um, they really didn't in the first matchup as much as we maybe had thought that they were going to be able to. And the, the passing attack was significantly better than we thought it would. But I, I, John Mechie's absence makes me think that this game is going to be played, I think, in the 20s, low 30s at highest. And I don't think we're getting – I don't think we're getting like a Joe Burrow performance – in the national championship game from Bryce Young. Like, no, I don't think that's going to happen. And maybe this will come back to bite me and and someone will screen record it and, and put it out there. But I, I think if the plays are presented to Stetson Bennett, he can make them. He proved that against Michigan. He proved that multiple times throughout the regular season. Um, But the only way Kirby smart loses this game is if he puts too much on the plate of Stetson Bennett, because there is a limit. Um, and he threw 48 passes in the game against Alabama in the SEC championship game. That's probably too many, but it's also because of game flow and because they did some poor things second and third quarter to kind of lose control of the game. I mean, and Hey man, you look at the, just the stats I've gotten pulled up right now for Alabama this season, you know, 1500 yards, obviously to Jamison Williams, they turned a guy who was number four receiver at Ohio state into the dude who's going to be picked in the top 10 first receiver off the board. Most likely come the draft. Mechie, who is obviously not present, another 1,100 yards. After him, they don't have a single dude, not one, with over 400 receiving yards on the season. And one of the guys that they have that's up above 250, because they have four of those guys, is Brian Robinson. That is not necessarily the equipment you need to attack George's Achilles heel, which is a young 
fairly inexperienced secondary, by the way, that actually played very well against Michigan. Yes. Um, I think that just to break down the last of the matchup stuff here, whether it's a Jai Hall who pretty much uh, was not with the team and is back with the team, was a guy who tore the spring game, was a guy who was supposed to be the next dude, hasn't really done anything this year, true freshman, whether it's, you know, Slade Bolden, who did well filling in as a slot guy in return for Jalen Waddle last year, really hasn't been a big part of the offense, whether it's, you know, Ja'Cory Brooks, who had the touchdown to beat Auburn and has kind of looked like the dude who's going to fill in for Mechie. The guy that I, I circle is actually, though, Jalil Billingsley, because he was in the doghouse to start the season, has worked his way back into the good graces of the team, has started to make a little bit more of a here and there impact. He is maybe their most gifted receiver, and he's a tight end. Can they get him isolated in those matchups against a Nicobe Dean, and is he capable to win those matchups over the middle of the field so that Georgia isn't committing, you know, an over-the-top safety to bracket Jamison Williams and take away the deep stuff. Because this offense just becomes way less potent if there isn't the constant threat of Jamison Williams going for 80 and scoring. I think he set the record this year for 50-plus yard touchdowns. If Alabama doesn't have that, the offense becomes a lot more mortal. Yeah, and and the – I mean – Part of the, the reason they were able to do that is because they protected really well in the SEC championship game. Absolutely. And I think that I think that between that uh, and between the fact that there was no issue protecting Bryce Young really in the in the Cotton Bowl against Cincinnati because the threat of the run was pretty solid. I don't I don't I just think we're gonna see different stuff from Georgia. And, and maybe this is me just convincing myself that we're not going to see another Alabama national championship, but I think Kirby's going to figure it out. And, and the, the big thing that everyone's going to keep harping on is Saban doesn't lose to his assistants. Like Jimbo got him and look at what it took for Jimbo to get him this year. But I don't know. I, I think that, I think that part of the reason that that is such, that is the case is because Saban has, taken on his assistance largely after they've left him to go to other sec schools that are not as aptly equipped to take him on. And it feels like George is getting the wheels rolling and kind of getting things figured out. So if the only hesitancy is really Stetson, like Stetson could lose them this game, but if Kirby is able to balance things, not put too much on his plate, and then hit a couple a couple shot plays and keep things keep things out there. I think they're creative enough to to be able to manufacture the offense necessary and I think that they're going to be able to I will say it right now. Bryce Young is not throwing for 410 yards again. That is not happening. Not in this game. Okay, let's talk about legacy stuff. I'll start with Bryce Young. What's on the line for him? Well, if he wins this thing, the Heisman Trophy National Championship uh, duo of of that it puts him in. I mean, it's becoming. It seems like it's becoming more and more uh, frequent because we've seen the last two. Yeah, Devontae Smith does it. Joe Burrow does it. Uh, it seems like everybody who wins 
a Heisman is also playing in the college football playoff and probably playing in the national championship game. So it's becoming less and less rare, but it still puts him in rare category. And, and I think that a lot of people thought that, and I thought this, this is why I was banging the drum on Alabama, not being as good as everyone thought during the regular season, Alabama being vulnerable, being a team that you could beat. Um, And I was saying that during the regular season, they lose to Texas A&M. They don't look good at Florida. They don't look good against Auburn. Like the road games were tough. If they win a national championship this year, you got to think that they're going to be, he's going to be better next year um, and going to kind of process things at a different level. But I think he already does process things at a great level. And and next year would be uh, another tone setter, but then it's, it's two and through to the NFL because he had that red shirt season. So that's what's on the line. I mean, it puts him in a different stratosphere. Um, Jalen Hurts never really, I mean, he didn't win the national championship other than the year that he got pulled for Tua. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had that chance in the, his freshman year against Clemson and led that touchdown drive. And then Deshaun Watson went and stole it, stole his thunder from it. I don't necessarily think that Georgia is going to be in a position where you want Georgia with the ball late. I actually think this is the, one of the rare games where if one of these two teams is driving, needing a, needing a touchdown late to win, you, you might feel better if you're the defense. So that, yeah, yeah, maybe, 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 I mean, we are talking about a Heisman trophy winner, right? I, yeah. But we also talked about this being one of the worst Heisman fields of the, of the last sure. like decade. And then he has a moment against Auburn and he balls out against, uh, against Georgia in the SEC championship game and everyone else around him just faded to black. So that's kind of the way I see it. But if, if they win this game and he balls out the hype train for next year is going to be insane. Yeah. And that, that's the thing that I circle about Bryce is that he won the Heisman this year. And I feel like he has a whole nother level to go to. Joe Burrow, you're not ascending beyond that. If he were to come back somehow, right, and play for LSU again that next year, he's not ascending beyond what he had just done. No. You know, Devontae Smith is not having a better season than what he had last year. I feel like Bryce Young, especially considering his age, could very easily be better next season. Um, Obviously, they're going to be without Jamison Williams. A couple other guys, John Mechie, probably Brian Robinson as well, but Alabama reloads is what they do. Uh, I think that we talk, though, about this potential that never really gets met for these young guys. With, with Tua, you know, we, we said immediately, wow, he just came in and won the national title as a freshman. You know, he never won another Heisman or he never won another national title, never won a Heisman, right? Same thing kind of happened with Trevor. We anointed him after his freshman season. He plays one of the all-time games in the history of college football against Alabama in that national title. He never raised his crown again, never won a Heisman. Yeah. Somehow. Uh, And it it just tells you that when your moment comes, you have to seize it. Uh, And for Bryce, that is now. I, if there's anybody who's going to be able to handle the pressure of this moment, it's him. We learned so much of that Heisman ceremony about his, his background and the um, assistance his father has given him in, in terms of his mental preparation, considering his dad's job as a uh, psychologist so I think he'll be ready for it. I think he'll be up to it. It'll be tough, though. And we have seen that in moments when he is pressured, 
Bryce is susceptible to looking average at times. He sometimes he's the best quarterback in the country against splits. Don't get me wrong. Statistically, that's proven. He's thrown more touchdowns against blitz pressure than anybody else by a lot. But also against Texas A&M, against Auburn, we've seen that when the pocket crumbles, it just isn't there sometimes. And Georgia has the guys, the dogs, if you will, to create that pressure. And they're going to be motivated because they're going to be shown filmed all week of them getting their tails whipped against an Alabama front that everybody said that they were going to be able to take advantage of and losing an SEC title and watching confetti fall on their opponents that they get a second shot at. So for that reason, I don't know if we want to do picks right now, do we? Might as well. Let, let's get to it in a second. Okay. Tell me about what's on the line legacy-wise for Kirby. Well, if he wins this one, I – I'm not going to say it's a changing of the guard in the SEC, but it it puts him in the Dabo discussion in the sense of he is in the he's at the top of the next tier because there's no one else up there with Saban, but in the tier two or the tier one B, because really it's guys that are not in the same discussion as everyone else in the country, but obviously not in not playing in nine out of 13 championship games. Kirby's in that discussion and he is someone who can build something that is more or has built something that is more sustainable than the one year glory run of Ed Orgeron at LSU or the one year uh, glory run where Florida state with Jimbo Fisher dominates and it all comes together in that one year and they have good, good pieces and they go to new Year's six bowls around and other times Obviously, Jimbo has moved to AM and that has kind of stemmed the tide of that. But it feels like everyone's kind of having pop-ups or whatever. Ohio State, Clemson, those teams are getting there. Georgia is getting to the playoff pretty consistently. If they get over the hump of one national championship, it feels like you could get a couple. And it could be really, frankly, they've had some bad luck in, in the playoff and they've had some unfortunate things go against them. If they get one, it feels like the – I guess the law of averages could come back to get them and, and kind of balance things out where I really think that they should have won the game a couple of years ago and second and 26 happens and people forget about that, but Mm -hmm. it, it is very sustainable what Kirby has built. And I think that he is far and away in a class of his own in terms of saving assistance, because I don't Jimbo's success was far enough removed from Saban, it feels like, and and he's kind of done his own thing. But Kirby is the one who immediately left Saban and felt like he had the answers and he had the infrastructure in place to figure it out, and he has. This is the last step. Yeah, and I don't know how long Saban's going to coach for. It could be two years. It could be 10. I don't know, you know, how many times are you going to get a chance to take the crown off the king and slay the giant? a great opportunity for him to start to write his own destiny, his own legacy as a head coach at Georgia and do something that Georgia has not done since Vince Dooley. In a way, it's kind of like college football's Cubs curse. And it's gotten to that point. Georgia has gotten so close so many times, but been unable to do it. But remember, we used to call a team losing uh, a chance to do something great or losing in an unthinkable way, Clemsoning. 
We don't do that anymore. Exactly. It just it shows you how much can change in the course of four quarters. And Georgia has a chance to really do that. I know. I think they know that. I know they know that actually uh, coming into this game. And I know Kirby does. And the question is, how does that affect him? You know, does it add fuel to the fire? Is it a positive or is it a negative? Because I know for a fact as well that this one has to feel a whole lot different than the last time they stepped into the ring and played for a national title because there was so much less pressure on him. So an immense amount of pressure, but so much less personal pressure on him to get it done because what's happened since Alabama has been a class above Georgia every time they've taken the field together pretty much. Yeah. I will also say this. The start of this, not having – they don't have the national championships yet, but the start of what Georgia has built, has built doing it with defense, doing it with run the, running the football dominantly – it kind of feels like we are like a decade behind of what Saban built at Alabama, because quietly the one thing that, that we're, we're not saying, and maybe this is what is holding them back in the difference between 2008 and 2022 mm-hmm. is that Alabama was able to win national championships with guys like Greg McElroy playing yep. quarterback guys like Jacob Coker playing quarterback. Um, if George is able to win a national championship with Stetson Bennett, imagine, I know that they had like a, they had Justin Fields in the building. Imagine what happens when they start to get the Bryce Youngs, when they start to get the Tua's because George is doing all this, but they're not doing it with like elite well, quarterback play. Well, that, that's the thing though. They have had those guys and they tend to, for whatever reason, go with the Stetson Bennett. Yes, I know. But that's what like Alabama at the same time had times where they were playing Blake Sims and they were doing those types of things. And that was kind of, biting them in the butt, but now Saban has this ability where he's able to uh, play a lead offense along with the great defense. So I, I, I just think that there's, there's better for Georgia as well out there and they could still win the national championship. Keep in mind, they also do have, I don't know if JT Daniels was a five-star, but they, they have two five-stars that are like third and fourth on the depth chart, Brock Vandergriff. If Stetson doesn't come back next year and Georgia doesn't get like Caleb Williams, uh, will probably be the quarterback next year. And he's another one of those five-star guys. I think that Kirby doesn't care. Like Kirby knows that the rest of my team is so good. It doesn't really matter what I have at quarterback. But that's, that's the kind of crazy. And that's kind of crazy. I, I get you. I hear you. I hear you. I think it maybe influences the recruiting a little bit too, though, because they do want to play a style that uh, isn't about the quarterback. Yeah. But the thing is, you're not Wisconsin. Like you're not, you're not, you're not, your hands are not tied behind your back being like, you've got to run this offense. Yeah. They, they have the George Pickens there. They've got, they've got guys they can throw the ball to. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What's on the line for Nick Saban? Nothing. I mean, he's just at, like, he's just, he's just adding to his trophy case. I'm sure he, he could win this title on Monday night, walk in there Tuesday, have a ring made for him and he put it in his, on his shelf and he'd, get back to work like nothing changes so I, I that's the boring answer but this this doesn't change anything we're just gonna sit there Monday night and be like Saban did it again and he did it again without his best team ever like without like last year's team was unbelievably good mm-hmm. overwhelmingly good and this year it's like man we could have beat him and the whole sport dropped the ball like everyone missed their chance to take advantage of a young quarterback um not an overwhelmingly great offensive line, a defense that was relatively vulnerable in terms of Alabama 
um, relative to Alabama standards, all these types of things. But like, it doesn't matter because we could be sitting here Monday night and be like, yeah, he's still the best. Like he's still the best ever. And it's kind of the same way that we felt with multiple Patriots Super Bowls or even like last year with Tom Brady. It's like sometimes everyone else just drops the ball and we end up in a spot where it's like, we didn't really think that this guy was going to win the title, but he won the title because he's the best. And yeah, when the the margins are thin, the best end up winning the best end taking advantage of the opportunities that they're presented. and, And to me, like, it's not that he needs to add to his resume. I don't know if we'll ever see a coach achieve what Nick Saban's achieved in our lifetime. Again, like I truly don't, we may, I mean, hopefully it's a long lifetime, but this is otherworldly stuff. And to me, this would almost be his most impressive accomplishment. Maybe that first title, because they were winning at a super high level with like three and four star guys before they really got the machine rolling. But this is the youngest team he's had. They would be beating what is historically maybe the greatest defense of all time. Still, I don't think we should say that, though. I, it doesn't matter. You look at what they've done to every single other team they've played, and I know the level of competition hasn't been insane. And nobody's gotten above 20 points, aside from Alabama. Who put up 41 when there was a real offense and a real quarterback there. So I, that's we'll see what ha- it, this would do a lot to cure the narrative if they hold Alabama to 10 in this game, which I don't think is impossible. Yeah. It's not impossible, but it's also, I will back off the Georgia's the best defense ever take when there's like 41 points and Jamison Williams running free downfield and 410 yards put on your head in the SEC championship game a couple of weeks ago. And that's the only instance that we've seen of them against an elite, elite offense. That's not led by KJ Jefferson or <laughs> KJ Jefferson's Will, good. Will Levis. He's good. He's not great. He's good. He's not great. Mm, so, I don't know about that. He had plenty to uh, give to your Penn state boys. I love how, like, this is the worst bowl season the SEC's had in a decade, and yet they've got both participants in the national title and still are going to be, like, 500 in bowls and won pretty much all the major ones aside from the one where Ole Miss lost their entire offense early in the game. And should – I mean, I'm declaring – I'm doing what Feinbaum did. I'm declaring the Music City Bowl a Tennessee win. You can't do that. How? How? Did you watch the game? Yes, I watched the game. Yeah, so they had a touchdown that would have won, like, effectively won the game. No. Off the board. No. That was a touchdown. Would not have effectively won the game. Yeah, they would have gotten a stop on the other end, and it's all balls. They had given up 52 points, and you just nonchalantly say they're going to get a stop on the other end. Gabe, I, I have to remind you that it just means more, and that's an SEC win. I can and will leave. Like right now. <laughs> if Don't do that yet. We're about to talk basketball. But before that, give me your pick. Georgia. I'm picking Georgia to win. And I'm going to say Georgia 28, Alabama 24. I will be rooting for Georgia. I can't do it, though. I started the year trashing Alabama. And... At every juncture, they've proven me wrong. 
I'm going to take the Crimson Tide. All right, that's fine. I mean, you're probably doing the smart thing. Um, Even though my brain really is telling me Alabama's going to lose this game. I just, I was reading the ESPN piece previewing this thing with all the coaches weighing in anonymously. Just about every, another SEC coach, another SEC coach said, SEC head coach said, all these guys are saying, I like Georgia in the second chance. So here's what I think happens. I think that Georgia is either in a close game or is leading at halftime and that Alabama makes better adjustments. That's what I would bet on. Because if there has been one criticism of Kirby Smart, it's that they don't seem to progress throughout the game. They come in with a good approach and and aren't able to uh, amend that approach at all throughout the course of 60 minutes. So that's why I'll take Alabama. Bryce Young, big in the second half. The legend grows. Okay. You want to hit quickly on the transfer chaos that is beseeching college football as it gets more and more aggressive. And do we even need to have a conversation about bowl opt outs? Because I just come away from every single one of those thinking that I need a shower because they're so stupid. Well, okay. I, here's the question that I have on bowl opt outs because the transferring, the transferring doesn't really bother me. I just wish that. And I understand that here's, here's the thing we could, as a media conglomerate, uh, come together and understand that bowl games are more spring football than they are the regular season. Yeah. And that's how they were prior to all these opt-outs. That's how they should have been. It should have been about, you know, getting your team ready for next year. It's always been about creating hope in your team for next year. Like that is what it has always been. It's always sure. been like ASU fans last. What would that have been Wednesday night, Tuesday night, whatever night it was. Um, it would have been Wednesday night. Yeah. Uh, their whole goal watching the Las Vegas bowl was to hope to see some development in Jaden Daniels and some belief for next year. Now, I don't necessarily know if that's what happened, but that's what people were watching for aside from just watching because you love the university. But the idea that you are, sometimes we are too close and the people that are on Twitter having these debates are so close and we overvalue the individuals playing the game in terms of our ability to enjoy the game where there are a lot of people and the, I don't, I hate to be like TV ratings person, but TV ratings for bowl games are insane because guess what? On a weekday afternoon when there's nothing else on and you can just watch a bowl game, people are going to watch a bowl game. And when the Rose bowl is on, it doesn't matter who's suiting up or what team is playing. People are going to watch the Rose Bowl. If there's Ohio State in the Rose Bowl, people are going to watch the Rose Bowl even more. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter if Chris Olave or Garrett Wilson is playing or if it's Marvin Harrison Jr. and Jackson Smith and Jigba. Yeah. Those guys, you can say all you want about the value that they have, and I hope that they sign whatever name, image, and likeness deals that they can and that they can make their money. But the value of the TV product is the fact that it's still Ohio State playing. And I don't think I don't think that opt-outs diminish the value of the game, even though I would love selfishly to be able to see another game of Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson playing football. Like sure. that's awesome. But I think the thing that bothers me most 
is not people opting out. It's not people playing in games and getting hurt like Matt Corral, because I think that that stinks, but that's just unfortunate. That's just the way that the game goes. Matt Corral wanted to play in the football game. Exactly. So if if you're a media person and you're like, told you you so Matt, you got hurt. Like you suck. Like let so bad. Let people play if they want to play and not play if they don't want to play. Like no one held Matt Corral's hands behind his back and pushed him on the field a la the uh, allegedly Bruce Arians comments of, of Antonio Brown. No one was saying get on the field or get out. Like they weren't telling Matt Corral to leave the Superdome if he wasn't going to play. Kenny Pickett was allowed to sit in the press box and do all that. I call the game and call the game. Yeah. He, he helped with the prep of the game, all of those types of things. If I was a player and I can't say this because I've never played a, a sport at a super high level. Sure. I would think that playing in the peach bowl and the risk reward of what's the draft variance between me playing in the peach bowl. If I'm Kenny Pickett and me not playing in the peach bowl and, or even getting hurt because turns out Matt Corral just had a sprained ankle. He's going to be okay. Like it's yeah. modern medicine is good. It was not life injury, like life altering injury. He's still going to get his money, but I would personally want to have the experience of playing an elite game that I earned an opportunity to do because I played really well all season and our team went 11 and two, like, like Pitt did. So that's just me. But if someone doesn't want to play, what are you going to do? Like some people are going to think it sucks. Some people aren't. I refuse to believe that there's this grand scheme where Kirk Herbstreet is saying, yeah, like, what are we doing? Like, Oh, like, like his, like people really think that Kirk Herbstreet does not have enough integrity to, to form his own opinions and that his ESPN bosses are forcing him. Like, no, Kirk Herbstreit's just a guy who grew up loving the Rose Bowl and can't fathom the idea of people not playing in the Rose Bowl. How hard is that to understand? I don't get it. I, I feel like I don't, I don't understand the need for some people to live vicariously in the decision-making of college athletes. Um, I, I, with the bull opt-out thing, you know, I want you as a player to do what's best for you. There's a lot on the line for these guys. I know that in that situation, again, I have to respect the fact that like, I can't fully understand the decision-making process. And I know that I would probably want, especially for a game like the Rose bowl to go, that memory is more valuable to me to go out there and play one last time. That, that is important. Um, for Matt Corral, I have tremendous respect for him trying to give his all for one last game for a place that gave him so much, right? And if you have that perspective on it, go play. If you are evaluating it and saying that it's more important for me to, you know, see to it that my family's taken care of and that I don't jeopardize myself or my draft stock playing in this game, all respect to you. You know, it's not a bad thing one way or the other. These are just people making choices and living their lives. Why do we care? And again, it's just like, I don't understand why people are like, wow, ESPN has so much vested interest. You know, every, I don't think the Rose Bowl audience is going to take a dip. No, it's, it's care about the Rose Bowl. It got 17 million people to watch this year. Like, and one of the worst matchups that we've had just from like a firepower standpoint in a while. And it turned into a great game, but yeah, it was a great game. I, okay. I, and, and I would say this, if you're a running back, I can understand opting out because taking an extra 30 hits is probably not necessary, but my biggest pushback is largely on 
if you are a fringe guy, if you're a sixth round guy and you're sitting out, it feels like a lot of people are sitting out because they want to inflate their self-worth and their perceived value of themselves rather than they're sitting out because they're preserving a first round pick. Like there is, I don't have an official count, but it feels like 75 to a hundred guys sat out this year. So if no one in the first four rounds of the NFL played in a bowl game, which I don't believe to be the case, uh, that seems surprising. It just seems like there are certain people who are want to be able to say, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm headed to the draft. So I'm not going to play in this bowl game. It's like you maybe having a standalone audience for you when you played on a team that went seven and five this year and probably didn't play a lot of games on national TV, maybe that would be a little bit of help for you. Um, All of those things are to say, I think that there is a section of the college sports media, largely the pro sports media and the media that does not enjoy the NCAA that is Mm -hmm. actively rooting for this. And I would ask you this, if like we are, we are, slowly and surely inching our way toward someone playing a true freshman season being really good and opting out two years ahead of the draft. And I ask this, how long is it going to be until people start saying, Oh, the NF, like, why does the NFL have a three-year minimum? Like all of these types of things, because I, I truly think between Jamar chase, not playing last year, Micah Parsons, not playing Panay Sewell, not playing. Well, Panay Sewell's been bad. But that's that's the downside. Well, it's going to be different for every guy. And we will have those dudes. We will. We will. Just like, you know, one player going to Jackson State doesn't mean that the entirety of college football is going to be different uh, forever, always, and that all your favorite players are going to go play at HBCUs, although there wouldn't be anything wrong with that, in my opinion. Um, I just think it's really weird that we've created a culture in which the cool thing, it feels very much like when we were in like middle school and people were like, oh, you're a tryhard. Like it's bad to care about things that you like. It's like, well, that's still a thing. We've, no, that's just a big thing in society nowadays, especially amongst young people. Yes. But we've made it like cool to not like playing in football games, which is just like, it's, it's like a badge of honor. That's like, yeah. Oh, that game. That's that game's beneath me. The sugar bowl is beneath me. The peach bowl is beneath me. I'm not playing anything. That's not the playoff. Wait until someone says, wait until someone doesn't play in a playoff game. And then we have people be like, oh, no competitive drive. It's like, what are we doing? I, it just all is perplexing to me. And again, from a derivation standpoint, it, it all comes down to why do you play the game? Do you play the game to have a moment in the national championship that you will remember for the rest of your life because you love football? Do you play the game because you want to play in a Super Bowl? Do you, it doesn't really matter. Um, that should it should if a guy is skipping a playoff game, I'm gonna have questions. That that is an exception to that rule. Where if a guy is not playing for a chance to win a national title that will last forever, I will have questions about that. I don't know if we will see that anytime in the near future. Um, but for yeah, for these bowl games that don't really do anything, um, and it's not to say bowl games aren't awesome that we should have fewer bowl games or anything to that effect either. Cause that's a stupid argument as well. Who do, what does having more bowl games hurt? How is, what's the downside? No. Are you getting fatigued from watching all the bowl games? Well, radical idea for you. Don't watch the bowl game. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, it doesn't hurt anybody. It only helps the schools. These companies obviously want to do it. Otherwise they wouldn't be sponsoring them. Right. They make tons of money. 
Yeah, like and paying each school, you know, six figures to come play. I just don't people people want to have a say in the comings and goings of other people's existence based on what they would do. And the bottom line is it really doesn't matter what you would do because you're not doing it. So why are you wasting the emotional and mental bandwidth even considering it? Right? Go live your own life. That's the bottom line on this thing. And you know, the other thing is that like. Hey, I don't know if you're an underclassman, right? If you're an underclassman and you're watching Jackson Smith and Jigba run around and break records, I don't, because what these kids got to realize is that the Quinn Ewers thing is going to go, it's not going to go extinct, right? There still are going to be kids that make a million dollars coming straight out of high school. But you get paid based on what you do. And Jackson Smith and Jigba, by playing in that bowl made himself a lot of money in NIL deals and in what it's going to do for his draft stock. Yeah. And And by the way, now he's in college football lore forever. And that matters too. Yeah. He has the bowl game record for most, most receiving yards ever. So I don't know. I just think it's, Hey, it's cool to care sometimes. Like it's, it's, it's okay to think that things matter and, I think it's very odd that we have just basically whether it's caring so much about the playoff that nothing else matters. That's a little bit of the messaging, but I also think there's just a cool factor to it that in today's modern media, where we're just enablers of like, yeah, it's, it's okay to just think everything is beneath you. And I think that that is a little pretentious, but if you don't want to play, like, don't play. Just yeah. a little just a little bit. Um, yeah, go get your bag. Go do what's right for you, right? And again, you know, with modern medicine, these injuries, they matter for draft stock. They do. They absolutely do. And, you know, it's never easy to rehab an injury. But the risk is not that of what it was when Eric Dickerson was playing, where if you blew out your knee, you were done. Yeah. Right? It's not that kind of risk. Most of the time, you know, obviously you never want to get hurt. And it makes things more complicated and can have a cost, but it, it isn't the same kind of risk. If Matt Corral tears his ACL in that game, he's still getting drafted in the first two days of the NFL draft. Yeah. It's just, it is like, I don't know, I guess from looking at it from a logical perspective of like, what is the true risk reward? You have just as much of a chance to get to tear your ACL by jumping or landing wrong, working out in box jumps in, Oxnard, California, as you do playing in New Orleans, Louisiana. Like, I, I don't know. I, uh, that's about as much, like, I think the, the, the lasting thing is watch out for where we're going. Cause where we're going is people advocating for the NFL draft to be open to anyone at any age and for people to be able to opt out of things at any point, because and that's here, here is why that will never happen. Gabe is because the reason that that NFL draft stipulation is the way it is, it's not because of the colleges. And this, again, I think people are just really misled and don't really understand why this works the way it does. NFL evaluators don't want to be put in positions where they have to evaluate one year of tape all yeah. the time and get it wrong because they don't know enough. It's but the guess same what? reason why that they're not going into high school gyms anymore and taking kids straight out of high school. But guess what? we're going to have people opting out and not playing games, not putting a second year of tape on film 
or his third year of tape on film. And we're going to go from evaluating guys based on 36 games in their career to 24 games or even 12. Like it's going to happen. It's going to happen. I, I, and, I think, you know what? I think that in a non COVID year, that will be harmful in their evaluations until proven otherwise. It's hard to just not play football, not play contact football for two years and then just pop right back into an NFL game where everything is so much faster and just be fine. Yeah. Jamar Chase has done it. Shout out because he won me a fantasy football championship. So Yeah, and even Jamar Chase had a pretty bumpy start there. Yeah, I thought he couldn't catch a ball for a while. Yeah. He needed um, the stripes. He, he's fine. And, you know, anyway, like just from a more overarching point, Everybody's going to be different. And I would be more concerned about a quarterback opting out for two years and then having to just jump back into it because of the mental component of things. And I would be Jamar Chase, who is go run in a straight line. Be, and obviously there's more nuance to what Jamar Chase does, but like his game is very much so I am bigger, faster, and stronger than you. And that is why I'm going to break the NFL record for 30 plus yard touchdowns. Like Joe Burrow has double the amount of 30 plus yard touchdowns of anybody else in the NFL. And that's because of Jamar Chase. Yeah. Um, Michael Parsons is a an all pass rusher linebacker and go get downhill, go get the football. Right. It's a little different, a little different uh, for yeah. each guy. So that said, let's talk about the transfer stuff real quick. And why Caleb Williams is going to North Carolina because his girlfriend goes to North Carolina. And we found that out through some extensive journalistic research. Yeah, the girlfriend, the girlfriend transfer theory. It's a real thing. Um, it's true for Adrian Martinez. There's a whole, there's like seven or eight guys that people have tracked down that have made moves because of their girlfriend. It's true for Keaton Slovis too. Yep. Um, man, uh, I, I don't know the the Caleb Williams leaving thing, the Dylan Gabriel reuniting reuniting with Jeff Levy, uh, in at at Oklahoma is a big deal. I think um, some people saying <laughs> Mackenzie Milton saying Oklahoma just got better at quarterback, and this would fun fact first left handed quarterback at Oklahoma since Josh Heupel. Mm. So know how that turned out. Um, I don't know the the transfer portal. It's just it's interesting. It's fun. I, I just wish that there was a, a firmer timeline on it. And I think that one of the things that we are running into the problem of, whether it's college basketball or college football is the timing of everything and the procedural matters of everything. Yeah. Um, I'm now glad you can't recruit a guy. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that the, I'm glad that this has not come into basketball of having guys leave. Like the, the process is very and this obviously happens because the NCAA tournament works in weekends and it eliminates people in orderly fashion, whereas mm -hmm. football does bowl games. And we have dumb things like Texas, the Texas bowl, having K state and LSU play on a Tuesday night on January 4th. That makes no sense. Um, we don't have guys opting out and transferring while the season is still this season that we're still playing is mm -hmm. technically still going on. And that's where, the NCAA and the rules committee is making things, making changes that we don't necessarily think about the, the blowback on our changes and yeah. the transfer portal, I think is something that was great as an idea. It needs more structure because right now it, 
it is great in that it provides teams a, a, a an answer or an, an ability to find answers quickly. It's great because it allows players to find uh, new homes and better fits and whatever. It also sucks because it just it just rips apart rosters in weird orders and it just puts people in limbo. And there's way more people in the portal than there is desire for people to be in the portal because yeah. guys go in there with false promises. So once all of that gets fixed, um, I'm glad that my job is not to be on the NCAA rules committee. I would rather just make suggestions from this seat than be ivory on towers, the- Gabe, ivory yeah. towers, but, uh, maybe we'll, let's figure that part out and figure out how to make sure that the college football season isn't, isn't like five different stages. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, this is obviously bad for college football. And there's at this point, there's no doubt about it. A, a tech firm is offering Kayla Williams a million dollars to go play at Eastern Michigan. Charlie Batch. That's, that's a thing that's happening. Um, that just on its face kind of doesn't feel good. What I will say is that regardless of whether or not I like this, because at this point I don't, it doesn't matter. This is what's fair. And that's the most important thing. Again, I could transfer to Georgia tomorrow if I wanted to. Um, and I, there is an extra layer to this. You know, these guys sign scholarship agreements that that's effectively a contract um, that, you know, adds a little bit extra to this uh, in terms of nuance, right? But if a coach can just up and leave whenever they want, a college player should be able to too. And although I think you're right in asking for more structure, I don't know how you can impose more structure on this um, in a way that doesn't limit it, limit the fairness of it, because in a vacuum of just that, this is how it should be. Yeah. I think that as we, as guys start to get paid though, there's going to be a little bit more pushback from schools of like, Hey, you did sign a contract. And that's why I think that the NILs, are going to be uh, the deals and the or the national letters of intent are going to start becoming More different better. year contracts because yeah. if guys want to be treated like employees, they're going to need, you can't like, yeah. But I know what Antonio Brown might make people believe and, and that you can just up and leave your job whenever you want to, Jeez. but, but like, in the real world, uh, you can't necessarily just bail on things before you're, yeah, you, you're thinking we're going to start seeing like non-compete clauses be put into scholarship offers. Yeah. Or like a, you can't, you can't leave before this time frame. I think that there's, there needs to be expiration dates of when you become a free agent. And that, like, I think that that's what's coming. Like everyone wants these guys to be, uh, everyone wants to say that student athletes are a sham and all of these types of things. Well, what's going to come is you're, you're going to start seeing not just uh, Caleb Williams commits to North Carolina or Caleb Williams commits to Oklahoma. You're going to see whoever it is, whatever big name college football or college basketball reporter, Seth Davis, he's going to start reporting. Uh, so-and-so has signed a one-year agreement with the university of Wisconsin or the university of Oklahoma and mm. guys and teams are going to know and schools are going to know, Hey, this kid's here for two years. They're not going to, they're not going to be like under this false belief that he's here for four, but he's probably leaving after one uh, like Quinn Ewers did. So I think that's what's coming. 
Interesting. When are we going to start seeing teams trade players for one another? Is that happening? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, where do you think Caleb Williams is going to go? I don't know. Like North Carolina, <laughs> probably. Uh, where that's... would you like to see him? Because Ole Miss just got Zach Evans, who was a super duper highly touted running back a couple of years ago, had some troubles, ended up at TCU. Um, and with Gary Patterson gone from that program, he's at Ole Miss. I don't know. I'd love to see him at Ole Miss. I'd cool. love to see him at Ole Miss. Um, ball out, win a natty. I personally think you'd be crazy to just up and leave Oklahoma, but. Well, I, I understand it, though, because the offense is going to be what it's been, and your entire offensive core skill players, including now even Mario Williams, who's the number one receiving uh, prospect coming in this past year, had a good season for Oklahoma as a true freshman. He's out. I don't know why you'd stick around. It seems like you're set up for failure. Yeah, I, I, I can understand listening to offers and such. I, I don't know. I, I hope he does well. I hope he goes somewhere that's fun. I, I hope that he doesn't. Not USC. Please not USC. Anywhere but USC. Well, if he goes to USC, then Jackson Dart's got to get up and leave somewhere else. So it's one of those things where there's just more job. There's less jobs than there are people capable of not capable. There's yeah, I guess less, less jobs available than capable people to do the jobs. Um, Because I think that the way that college offenses work, we were able to find successful quarterbacks in a lot of spots. Okay. Let's do some basketball. Big All games right. have been played. Some big games have not been played um, because of COVID. That is a developing situation. And hopefully it doesn't persist to impact things. And I don't think we're going to go anything beyond that uh, part of the discussion with that. Well, the, the protocols keep changing. So. Yeah, and as they should, we learn more and more about Omicron, and it's not COVID-19. It's not the same thing. Um, So, yeah, they should change. They should be adaptable, and yeah. Yeah, and I hope that uh, ideally the same thing that has happened in places like South Africa would happen in the United States, and we will see a rapid decline of cases soon. Um, At least that's the hope. And selfishly for college basketball reasons, we would get back to the part of November slash early December where we didn't wake up worrying about whether games would get canceled or, or be postponed out of nowhere. Because it seems like between more than 100 teams going on pause in December and all this kind of stuff, it feels like we're going to hit a point where everyone has had it or everyone has gone on pause. And I don't know who... <laughs> So the, the thing that bothers me most is that some schools are doing the test everyone. And then some schools are doing the only test those with symptoms. And I think that uh, one of those formats is maybe a little more conducive to rational thinking and one's not, but I just hope we get back to a, a schedule where we're not having four out of eight games that are big time on a night get canceled because, or get canceled out of nowhere. Like we have with, it seems like every Pac-12 game um, in the last month where teams should just announce when they are playing, not when they're not playing. Yeah. I, I don't really have anything else to add on that part because yeah. I don't want to get too deep into it. Um, no. 
basically all I all I ask is for people to actually read about things uh, instead of relying on established knowledge because we still don't really even know the beginning of anything about any of this stuff. It's going to take 50 years for us to really understand what this has been and what it was. Um, so yeah, that said, on the court, you know, I think what is happening is we are starting to see this emerging dueling banjos of sorts, uh, a trio even, of elite conferences are going to dominate the tournament field. The SEC, the Big 12, and to a lesser extent, the Big 10, I would imagine that we're getting about 60% or above of at-large bids are going to come from those conferences. It may be closer to 70. The ACC might be a two- or three-bid league. The Pac-12 has a very good possibility of being a three-bid league, given all three of those teams might be top two seeds. That's possible. But it's probably going to be a three-bid league unless somebody emerges from the doldrum in the middle, whether it's Washington State or ASU or even Oregon. Those are kind of the teams that I circle as teams that could be capable of doing that. I mean, Cal is nine and five. Stanford is bleh. Um, I don't think really anybody else has prospects of going on a run in conference play. But the Pac-12 looks like a, a three-bid league. Um, and, you know, with the ACC having an all-time down year, the Big East, Big Ten, SEC, and Big 12, you know, I'm expecting upwards of – 30 teams from those conferences. Yeah. Like the, I've just come to the assumption that the PAC 12 is going to be a three bid league and none, none of those three teams will be lower than a four seed. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Probably none lower than a three seed given unless USC falls out. I am a huge believer in Arizona. I am a somewhat believer in UCLA and a skeptical believer in USC given that the the talent that they've played and the ability of them to be able to score um I think their defense is incredible but their 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 offensive attack has been iffy a little bit um but at the same time like those three that race is going to be great we didn't get to see those games in the early part of January because they were on pause and the conference did not want UCLA and Arizona to play immediately upon both coming off of or off of UCLA coming off the pause, which I think is just weird that we're admitting that we would prefer to see these teams at full strength and that we would rather see UCLA come off of pause and play a a Washington than, than we would let them play Arizona and let Arizona just kind of, I guess, drub them Um, in that sense. That to me feels like the conference playing checkers or, or playing, I don't know, taking control of the matchups and and setting them up in an ideal fashion, which maybe that's good. Maybe that's, that's sets up better games, but it feels like we should just be getting these games in if possible. Mm -hmm. Um, The PAC 12 is probably a three bid league. The ACC aside from Duke, like North Carolina has had four chances to play. Don't count out wake. Wake is wake is maybe, maybe a maybe, but like, this is a if if the ACC right now was what the Pac-12 was, Duke would not be the two team in the in the number two team in the country. If we yeah, sure. if we re uh, if we have this same exact situation and UCLA was Duke and UCLA was the only team in the Pac-12 uh, that was ranked, if UCLA was the only team in the Pac-12 that was 
a top 35 team in Ken Palm, uh, which I believe, okay, top 30 team in Ken Palm because mm-hmm. North Carolina is 31, excuse me. Um, if that was the case, UCLA would not be the two, number two team in the country, even if they were 11 and one and they had beaten Gonzaga. Right. People would say like, congrats on the win against Gonzaga, but you struggled a little bit against Virginia Tech at home. You weren't great in all these other situations. And 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 I think Duke would be where UCLA is at, at five, or they would be where USC or Arizona is, where USC is undefeated, but they're seven. Like, I don't think we treat, it the, treat them fairly, but as you pointed out, the SEC, the Big Ten, and the Big 12 probably are going to take advantage of this, maybe the Big East too, and certainly the WCC is, because I think that they can get two or three in, um, although some issues come up when San Francisco loses today to Loyola, which just happened. So I don't know, but um, I'm just disappointed that the ACC, the ACC has been awful, awful. And that's too far. That's true. They've not been awful. The problem is they've been erratic. They have a tier of teams that have lost games that they shouldn't. Uh, Your attention goes to Virginia immediately losing the Navy, the opener, They've been up and down. They also throttled a Providence team that's pretty good. So, I mean, I think the the thought that Duke's going to be the only team out of this league that goes to – I know Jeff Goodman probably tweeted that in jest that ACC is one big league and it's Duke. Yes. Getting that's jokes extreme. off is fun. They are, they're going to have a clump of bubble teams. The main thing that I think has undone them is teams like North Carolina, Virginia Tech, and Florida State being slightly less than what we thought they were going to be right and losing non-conference games and that's really what's going to be hard about evaluating the ACC is because these teams were inconsistent in their non-con and tended to lose the significant non-conference matchups so the entire league does not have a ton of basis to build a resume at this point beating each other that makes it really hard to evaluate you come March Um, but I will say that you know Stringing together five or six conference games throughout the course of the year at one point or another and avoiding a skid of two or three consecutive losses, that might be enough to see you into the field. That, that's perfectly plausible to me. And teams like Syracuse, Louisville, uh, and then you even might toss in, you know, a Wake um, or a Miami who have been both better than anticipated. I'm not sure if either are good, but they're both 12 and three. I, I think would, those teams are all going to kind of be bubbling in the discussion, and it's going to make for a very cluttered asteroid field of a bubble. I think the problem is, I mean, you say like a Syracuse. Syracuse is seven and seven in Ken Palm. Yeah. They're rated below Kansas State, Vanderbilt, A and M, and hey, Vandy's good. No, Vandy's no, good. that's my point. Is like yeah. Vandy has over massively overachieved, and I don't know what's going on. And Syracuse has massively underachieved. So that. That is the problem. Yeah, and, but tell me this. Tell me this. Sorry to interrupt, but tell me this. Do you not think it's possible for Syracuse to easily rattle off six straight behind hot shooting from the Bayheims and Gerard? And easily is doing a lot of work in that sentence. <laughs> Can you not see that happening though in the conference and just changing the whole narrative around Syracuse? Yes, but I could also feasibly see Syracuse, Virginia Tech. North Carolina, Wake Forest, all beating up on each other. And then we get to the ACC tournament and the two, the two, three, and four seeds in the tournament, everyone that's not named Duke is like, 
holy crap, like we got to buy on the first day of the tournament and I, and we need quality wins still. And, and they're not able to play more. And, and yeah. if the wrong teams go on a run in that tournament, they're screwed. Like the fact that the league is the league as a whole is seven and 25 against top 40 Ken Palm teams is a horrible indicator of where they're at. And that's why I would be pressing the panic button more than you. And while the Goodman one bid league jokes are like funny and a little bit of an extreme thing, there's like some sad truth to it and some scary parts of it where like, I told you, I texted you the night that Duke played Virginia tech at home. And I was like, that is the toughest game on Duke's schedule remaining in this year. And the, and I said the same thing the night that they played at Ohio state and that they lost. And I said it the same thing against Gonzaga. It's like there's three games before the calendar year turned where you could say this is the toughest game of Duke's year. Well, yeah. I, the trip to the Dean Dome is going to be hard regardless because it just is. Yes, it just is. Um, and, you know, Duke has looked not bulletproof. They've struggled in some of these games. Uh, I think there will be points in time where they, they go down. I, I think this team is probably going to lose four games or so um, throughout the course of the year. Uh and that will obviously prop up the rest of the league because, I mean, Duke is probably going to get a one seed just off the merit of it being Coach K's last season, which what is he doing yelling at other – why are we still just yelling at other college players? I don't care what he said to you. You're a grown man. He's a college student. Why are we tracking dudes down into their own huddles and giving them sermons on the justice and righteousness of basketball? Shut up. What's your major? I don't know, man. The, the, the Duke stuff is just so tired. <laughs> You're the, already tired. You were tired of it before the season. I was tired of it before anything started, but I was especially tired of it when, when we're getting halftime show talks about it in games that Duke is not involved in. <laughs> so that's, that's overwhelmingly annoying to me. Um, and let's go to let's let's go to a league that actually matters. Okay. Okay. Let's talk Big Ten. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about the SEC. <laughs> no, we're going to say the best for last. Um, it just means more. The Big Ten. Who is the team that you think is the best team in this league right now? Because Purdue already has two conference losses, and it's just starting to look a whole lot like Iowa last year, where it's when the offense clicks, they can really overwhelm you. I think this Purdue team is better than that Iowa team was last year because guard play theoretically should just be better. Ivy has been all over the place. Um, and I think you should be really concerned if you're Purdue right now that this needs to be your year, and it might not be. And it might not be because you don't defend well, even yeah. though you have pieces to defend. Like, I, I understand that there's a an issue with Zach Eady because he's a massive individual and moving laterally is a little bit challenging for someone of that size. But like there's no reason Travion Williams can't be a capable defender. There's really no reason that Jaden Ivy can't be a capable and, and uh, good defender, but also individual defenders don't make great team defense and you have to have guys, other guards play better defense and you have to have other pieces play better defense as a whole. Like they are, overwhelmingly in the top 25 of Ken Palm teams, them, Ohio state and Iowa It is so anti big 10, but those three teams suck defensively and are great offensively and their numbers stick out compared to everyone else because everyone else 
there is not an, another team other than Loyola Chicago mm-hmm. uh, who is outside the top 45 in defensive efficiency while being a top 25 team. Um, excuse me, Xavier is as well. And they're the 24th team in the country. So yeah. according to Ken Palm, like Xavier's not great defensively, but like the far and away worst defensive teams are big 10. Uh, and that doesn't make much sense. It doesn't line up with what we're used to. And there's not like Illinois is moving their way up, inching their way up because Kofi keeps playing better. And mm-hmm. Michigan State, I believe in a lot. I, I think that they're they're balanced. They're not great at anything. They're not really great at offense. They're not really great at defense, but they're very they're above average at both. Um, and they have great coaching. I it's just weird. Like we've kind of have a bizarro land where big 12 teams are like beating the crap out of each other. And we're having a situation where an Iowa state team wins a game, despite making three shots in the second half last night and sec teams are playing pretty solid defense across the board. Like three of the top five defensive efficiency teams in the country reside in the sec, I guess Mm -hmm. now sixth because Auburn moved down because Iowa state and Texas tech just played played a rock fight last night, but the big 10 is not what it used to be. Like the big 10, you can go get buckets in now. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's why Purdue can win a bunch of games, but it's not going to translate when they get to the tournament. If they yeah. can't stop anybody, we've seen it time and time again, uh, you know, defense matters, especially in college basketball, where sometimes you just don't make shots. Uh, I, I think that, you know, with Purdue, it's been wildly disappointing so far. I think they've fallen from that, top tier that I've mentioned so many times this season, just because on any given night, you know, it may just not happen for them. And they're going to finish this year with five, six, maybe even seven losses on a team that very easily, if they were just average defensively would win almost every night. Um, They gave up 90 to Nichols. Nichols state gave up 90 to them. Yeah. Yeah, That can't happen. um, You know, Matt Painter is a great coach. I'm sure they'll get it figured out. I'm just not sure with whatever they figure out, it will be enough to really change my perception of what they are at the moment. Um, Every team's entitled to change. It's a long season, but this is very alarming. What it does is it opens up the conversation for what we assumed was going to be a league owned by Purdue this year for other teams. Uh, And I think at the top of that list right now is Michigan State, who has only lost the two games, both to really good opponents. Um, And, you know, when you've lost to Kansas and Baylor, who are, in my opinion, the two best teams in the country, and elsewise are 13-0 and and starting to play better and better every game, it looks like it could just be another year for one of the great coaches and Tom Izzo to just win the league. I He's certainly shaping up to be, and this is early talk because it's January 6th, um, it's, it's shaping up to be like a four-seed Final Four run for Michigan State is what it feels like. I don't even know if they're going to be on the four line. Like that might be. I don't see why this team can't be in the one seed discussion. Well, one seed, I think there's a clear, a clear class of teams that are going to be in the one seed discussion. Like I think whoever wins the Pac-12 is probably getting a one. Uh, I think that Baylor is getting a one. I think Gonzaga might get a one. Um, Might get a one. And Duke might get a one. But I'm telling you, if it's a head-to-head resume comparison, at the end of the year, I'm confident Michigan State's resume is going to be better than Duke's. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. Their resume might be better, 
the one loss on the Duke line or the two losses on the Duke line because they'll lose one game at least. Um, like I said, I think they're going to lose three or four. I don't know, man. The ACC is so bad. It's it's so what bad. What I'm saying, though, is the, the league isn't full of incapable teams. or It's full of teams that have underperformed. Okay, that's fair. Um, I just don't think – I don't think – uh, I would bet a lot of money Michigan State does not end up as a one seed. That seems extreme to me, but four is probably too low. Like, there'll be a two or a three, I think. And I, I think Purdue could end up being – like the last two seed or maybe the first three seed. It's a team that you wouldn't want to play, but you would also feel pretty comfortable about going out there and scoring on them, which doesn't scare you. Fair enough. Uh, credit to what Illinois has done. They've gotten Kofi Coburn back, but if you had told me Andre Corbello was going to be the fifth leading scorer on this team at the beginning of conference play, I would say that they're 500. And what they've gotten from Alfonso Plummer, the Utah transfer, who has – been pouring in 17 points per game. Nobody saw that coming. Uh, even Jacob Grandison, who transferred in from Holy Cross last year and just was kind of a role guy on this team, has been at 14-plus, I think, like the last five games. And Illinois, through great coaching from Brad Underwood, has turned themselves into a team that's a player in this league again where it didn't look like it early. I've been a believer. I've, I mean, they're – because of Kobe Kofi's slow start and he didn't play the first three games and Curbelo's issues, his concussion, um, they kind of fell off the map. I think they're back. And I think that they might have the pieces. Like it might've been one of those situations where we were higher on them last year. Everyone talked themselves into, I know I picked them to win the national championship during the bracket um, when the bracket was released they might be better this year. Like they might be better suited, better experienced and more prepared mentally to do it uh, with this group than they were in, in years past um, or specifically last year. And I don't know, I guess we, we had gone into big 10 play and thought Purdue was going to run away with the thing. And it feels very much like the sec where five different teams could win it. And it feels, yeah. and, and then like, I think we know who's going to win the ACC and we know the two teams that can win the Big 12. I think Villanova is probably a class of their own in the Big Big East. I, oh, no, 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 no. I disagree with that. I think that they are. And I, we'll see how that kind of plays out. But I think that they're better. I think they're significantly better than Providence. I don't. I don't. I, well, it's not Providence I'm worried about. It's the, there's a whole clump of teams. And that Villanova had no business beating Xavier and did. Um, at home does not change my perception of what they were. Now, don't give me that. Uh, Xavier made like nine of 17 or nine of 15 or nine of 12 threes, whatever it was in the first half of that game. And, and then, then proceeded to literally not make a single one in like 15 attempts in the second half. It's the only reason why they lost. Villanova was not the better team that night. Anyway, we're not talking about the big East right now. We're talking about the big 10. But but the the point is, the point I was trying to make is that it feels like we've got like a pretty solid tiering of every league, except for the Big Ten. Like I think it could still be five or six teams, other than like the SEC. But even the SEC, like I see some flaws in like Tennessee still can't score the ball consistently. The, LSU, the, the, the SEC is just a ton of good teams right now, like a ton. Yeah. Um, last last things on the Big Ten, Ohio State. 
is the second highest ranked team from the league right now at 13th. Um, do you think they're actually the second best team? Do you think they're legitimately in that and that tier? And can they just ride EJ Liddell and the EJ Liddell ats pretty much to a potential chance of winning the league? If the, if the question is, do I think they're their second best team right now? The answer is no. If the answer, if the question is, do I think they can be the second best team on a given night? Yeah. Like, I, I just don't, I don't think there's a lot of separation between these teams. Um, okay. Purdue, Purdue does one thing at a really elite level, Illinois, Ohio state, Michigan state. Um, those teams all do both offensively and defensively. They do things above average, but they don't do anything special. Yeah. And then there's some real warts on teams like, Iowa and Michigan and Indiana yeah, where they no. like they can either get a bunch of stops, but they can't run consistent offense or they can score at will, but they can't stop a nosebleed. Like Iowa, Iowa's defense is worse than last year's. Um, even though Keegan Murray's NBA talent probably transfers his talent transfers the NBA better than Lucas does. And I keep telling you this, and I keep telling you, you should be higher on Keegan Murray, um, but you're not. So I, I don't know. It's going to be fascinating to watch. And there's matchups every single night that are worth watching. Like Michigan Rutgers the other night was worth watching, even though Michigan is now seven and six. And that seemed unfathomable when I was picking them to go to the final four um, at the start of the season. So I don't know. It's, it's a, it's going to be a league where I feel like I'm more intrigued to watch like the sixth and seventh best big 10 teams play than like the third and fourth best ACC teams play or the fourth and fifth best Pac-12 teams, because I don't think that the fourth and fifth best Pac-12 teams are going to be NCAA tournament teams this year, um, which gives you more reason to watch middle-of-the-pack Big Ten teams, middle-of-the-pack SEC teams, and middle-of-the-pack Big 12 teams this year. So, Okay. Uh, let's move very quickly to the Big 12 after one last comment on the Big Ten. Johnny Davis has been one of the all-time surprises in college basketball. What he is doing pretty much single-handedly carrying Wisconsin right now. I mean, Brad Davison is doing his thing to an extent, but it really is just Johnny Davis. And what he did in West Lafayette against Purdue is unbelievable. He is the national player of the year right now. Yes. Yeah. If the season just ended. The 37 at Purdue was incredible. Um but maybe we'll forget, like, I think Ben Matherin is in that discussion. Yeah, I think, for sure. I think Keegan Murray is in that discussion. I, I know you don't. Um, but if you're going to reward EJ Liddell for playing on a team that's really great offensively and not great defensively, which a lot of college basketball people are, you also got to reward Keegan Murray. Um, okay, sure. But, but I, I think, think Ohio State's a better team. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that this endpoint discussion is going to be – fascinating all year long because the depth of talent and the experience of talent, which is why it's weird with Johnny Davis, because like all the other guys have been around the block, like they're old guys um, or there's a ton of the old guys. And yet we've got like Johnny Davis and Matherin where they're, they're guys in their second years and they're just dominating. Yeah. Okay. Let's do the sec now. Um, 
because I said we'll save the best for last, and I, I jokingly said that about the SEC, but it's not because it's Big 12. The Big 12 is the best league, um, and we'll touch that in a second. But in the SEC, you know, Tennessee's been up and down. It's been uneven. Alabama has played to the level of their competition in non-conference. There's no reason to suspect that will not be the same in-conference play. Um, you know, on any given night, there are teams in the middle of the pack, like Ole Miss and Mississippi State and apparently Vanderbilt that can jump up and bite you. And uh, we'll see. I mean, like there are even teams like Florida that are on the periphery of the top 25. They'll, they'll head to Auburn and play them over the weekend. Um, LSU has been a pleasant surprise and has been really good. Where do you want to start here in this league that is as fraught as any? Um. I think the interesting thing is that Jabari Smith is like, people think he's the number one pick now. Like he has in the mock drafts that I was looking at this morning, he has leapfrogged Paulo. He's leapfrogged Chet. And people are, people are saying that at six ten he's every bit the playmaker that the other two big forwards have been. Um, and I think that came out of nowhere. I think that what we saw from Auburn in the battle for Atlantis was really impressive, um, even though they lost to UConn in that first game. And they got into the loser's bracket, but then they got into the loser's bracket and they've done some pretty nice stuff. And then you get to seeing them play defense, seeing them play defense at a extremely high level despite playing at a quick tempo. And it feels similar to what Alabama did last year. Uh, without the elite shot making and the um, elite three point making because Alabama's offense last year, because they played at such a quick tempo, it was like they, they would let people score. Um, but people were scoring because there was so many possessions. It wasn't because Alabama's defense sucked. Like Auburn defends you and LSU yeah. defends you. And I think, I think from an interesting perspective, other than Auburn, what is crazy to me is the fact that LSU has flipped a switch from being the, we will score every time down the court and we don't care if you give, if, if you score to, we will stop you every time down this court and we might not be able to score at all tonight. Like they are a complete inverse of what they were last year. Yeah. I would have really loved to see Sharif Cooper get to play with Jabari Smith because that the pick and roll combination just would have been unbelievable offensively. And I I mean, you look at this league head to toe and we, we still don't really have a, clear picture of what Kentucky is. Uh, although they all, they were the perceived favorite ahead of their loss last night to LSU, which, by the way, I mean, they were in control of the game. They were up 50 to 41, 13 minutes left, yes. But in a game that finished 65 to 60, uh, their defense breaking down on them a little bit, but moreover, their offense certainly breaking down on them. You score 10 points in the last, I mean, 13 minutes on the road, you're going to get beat in this league. And that's it doesn't matter who you're playing this season, um, aside from maybe South Carolina and maybe Georgia. I, I think the favorite is Auburn. I think. I don't know. It's because the offense can come in and out at times. But I think the biggest, most important development in this league is what Flanagan for Auburn looks like coming back as he works back from injury. Does he continue to improve? Does he continue to find more momentum there with the ball in his hand? to compliment Jabari Smith, because if that's the case, Auburn is the best team in this league. But for Kentucky, just to circle back to where this this comment started, you know, it's hard to go down to LSU and win. Pete Maravich is a hard place to play. 
And I don't know if there's been a more surprising player in this league than Tari Eason and what he's been able to do for this LSU team, leading the way in scoring for them. But if you're Kentucky, this is you're starting to think, man, this supporting cast is really good, but it is a supporting cast. And if we just had one of our five-star guys this year, this team could contend for a national title that's supposed to be Ty Ty Washington. And he's been really all over the place. Yeah, like if he figures it out, they could be really dangerous. I think that the thing of the five in the in the top of the SEC, whether it's Auburn, Kentucky, LSU, Tennessee, Alabama, of those five, I would be most surprised if Tennessee won the league. I would really you think yeah. the scoring is that bad? Well, them and them and LSU, like they offensively, it is a struggle, a struggle. Um, and there's like, there's nights where Tennessee is just so poor shooting the ball that they give you just about no chance to win, but they defend their butt off and they keep themselves in it. Um, the problem is how consistent is that? And I, I think that that probably poses a bigger threat to them in the tournament than it does in league play. Um, we saw that when they played Oregon State in the NCAA tournament last year. But I, I think that Auburn, Kentucky, Alabama, I think those three are the three I'm more confident in than LSU and Tennessee. I think for Tennessee, Tennessee just needs to start playing less guys. Uh, you, you're playing 10 guys, 10-plus minutes. Yeah, you can't do that. You can't do that. And, and for them, you know, the, the reason why I, I – Kennedy Chandler is getting better and better. He's a freshman point guard playing for Rick Barnes. That's not an easy task. And he is the guy who holds the key that can really unlock what this team can be because their top three scorers are all shooting over 35% from three. Uh, Vescovy or Vescovy, I, I believe it's Vescovy. Vescovy. It's Vescovy now. He put um, it De Niro, uh, he needs to be a little bit more consistent. I've always kind of thought that he was more of a six man than he was as a, a lead scorer, which he is for this team right now. Um, and they need to get more out of Josiah Jordan James. If those three things happen, I don't see why this team can't win the league. Justin, like what I think should happen is Vescovy, uh, Jesus, uh, goes to the bench and, and Justin Powell starts. And that's how I think they unlock some offense. But Right now, yeah, like you said, like, you know, they scored like 24 some odd points against Ole Miss uh, in the first half. And they won that game. They won it overtime 66 to 60. But when you've got your own social media clowning you and saying sorry at halftime in a 24 to 19 football game, basketball game, uh, you know, it probably on any given night is not going to be enough to be consistent enough to win. But defense is something that will be a barometer. You know, I'd rather have a team – that's elite defensively than a team that is elite offensively if the opposite side of the floor is a liability. That tends to bode well, or at least bode well more, more consistently yeah. uh, than, than uh, in, other, in other regards. But I don't know. It could be any of those five teams. I just – I don't know. I guess I'm just scarred by the fact that I've seen Tennessee, what Tennessee looks like when they play like Villanova. Like if they yeah. play a team and, and obviously that is a hard grading scale, but there could be nights where they play Alabama 
and like everything goes in and they get beat by like 20. That's not true though, because they played Alabama and it was close. You know what I mean though? Like sometimes they're so offensively inept that they're just not in the game. Do you not think it's going to get better? Do you really not think it's going to get better? Because if, if that all rides on Kennedy Chandler. I don't know. I, I'm not that impressed by Kennedy Chandler, if I'm being honest. Okay. Like, and, and I'm also not super impressed with Ty Ty Washington. So I guess that's, that's the thing that could unlock either of the two teams is if one of the two plays more efficiently, more competently. Um, I don't know. It's, 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 a, it's a toss up in every league in America. I think I know who I would pick except for in the sec. Cause even in the big 10, despite all the problems, I think that I know the consistency factor of like Michigan state that I would pick them. Yeah. But I mean, in the sec, there are ups and downs of all five of those top teams. The, the bottom line is that the only time in this league that you're going to have a night off pretty much is when you play Georgia or Missouri, like even Texas A&M is 12 to two. Yeah. And decent non-conference wins. Um, even Vanderbilt, you know, is nine and four and just beat back-to-back teams that have been in the top 25 this season at BYU and Arkansas. Arkansas never had business being in the top 25, but yes, good win. Oh, and and that, that leads me to my next question is how worried are you about Arkansas at this point in time? Yeah, I'm worried. Do you think they're going to make the tournament? Do you think this is Eric Musselman's last season in Fayetteville? No, 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 no. Arkansas is going to get fired because he's going to jump ship. Let me look at their schedule. Because part of this thing with, with the SEC is like, who do you play at a So the rest of the, the rest of the month oh. of January goes a Missouri at home at LSU, South Carolina at home, A&M at home at Ole Miss, and then West Virginia at home in the SEC big 12 challenge. So the potential to build up some momentum, that's not like the real hard part of your schedule in the February. Gauntlet. It's going to be really tough. The end is a gauntlet. Um, once they play Auburn on the 8th of February, aside from Mizzou, I think there's a real chance that they lose like every game. I mean, they have some help because their home court advantage actually matters. Not against but, Vandy. But it didn't get but it did against Vandy. I, I just think that they they don't have overwhelming talent. They don't have the Moses Moody of last year. Yeah. And like Chris Likes is legitimately too small. Yeah. And Connor Vanover, like, loved the guy, loved watching him when he was a cow. He's legitimately too big. He's, he's legitimately too big. Um, he has the Zach Eady problem. Uh, the mobility is just not there for someone because he's too large of a human being. Um, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to be mean. I just was never in on this team, so I don't feel like I have the need to feel like I'm out on this I'm team. I'm on this team. Fair. So, Fair. Do you think that makes the tournament? No, I don't. Okay. How many teams in the SEC do? Um, all right. Obviously, the five that are ranked. I think Mississippi State is a tournament team. I think Florida is probably a tournament team. Um, Vandy's making the case. Scotty Pippen Jr. is inclining like he's going to be a dude that could be considered in the first-team All-American mix. The three-game stretch where you lost to SMU and Temple. It hurt. Hurts. Hurts it a, hurt lot. a lot. Um, they got, it, you it's, got 
it's, it's a team that's starting to come together and find identity. Other guys are scoring. And when Scotty Pippen gets his, um, they can beat anybody. But if they're going to beat anybody, some of those anybody's needs to be Tennessee, Kentucky, Alabama. Yeah. Like, they got to take advantage of their chances. Um, I think that the likely outcome is seven teams. Okay. Do you think that's the most of any conference? No. Because you think the Big 12 will have more, I assume. No, I think that the Big 10 is going to get eight. And I think the Big 12 will also get seven. I think everyone in the Big 12 is getting in, aside from TCU, K-State, and Oklahoma. Oklahoma State. Oklahoma State. Okay. Oklahoma State's not allowed in. It's not allowed in the tournament. Um, Let's talk about the Big 12, though. So, Kansas and Baylor, it looks like we're going to get a reprisal of what we had in the COVID-shortened season that we never got an answer to in the NCAA tournament, which was Kansas was peaking at the right time against a Baylor team that started off whatever. No. Um, got beat at home by Baylor, but came back on the road and beat Baylor. This year, I think that Baylor has a different swagger about them as a reigning national champ. But I'm going to take Kansas to win the league, and here is why. When it comes down to wing play and guard play, Baylor has a lot of good guys, but I trust in the fact that Kansas – is going to have the better ones in any matchup they play. Uh, I, I think when you take into account what they have in terms of wing scoring, um, and it's going to be fascinating to watch, you know, Ochak Baje go up against Kendall Brown and Sohan whenever they do play, because it's going to be a length like he's never seen. I kind of believe that having the guys who have been there, done that on the wing, and having guard play that kind of flips over into your wing because those guys are going to handle the ball a lot um, is going to be really, really important. And I just think for Kansas, they've got to figure out what is David McCormick and what is he going to give them? Because if David McCormick's good, I think they're just as good, if not better than Baylor. Well, if David McCormick is what David McCormick was in February and March of last year, then yeah, it is going to be a different thing like Kansas can go to a level that I don't know if Baylor like Baylor's ceiling is dependent on the guards and wings yep uh you have a consistency from everyday John yeah that probably does not necessarily it, it doesn't necessarily exist but there's also not as high of a ceiling um the thing that stands out to me is the fact that we have this turn where McCormick just got benched. He goes for 17 and 15 career high in rebounds against Oklahoma state. Uh, and, and some reckless, uh, I don't, I don't remember, I don't know who was on the broadcast the other night. I think it might've been, um, was choosing, was choosing maybe whoever it was, was saying, I think it was Mark Neely. Uh, was saying that McCormick was was like wilt level good, and I was like, all right, we're 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 saying. Uh, I watched that game with mute on, and now I'm a little bit thankful. We're doing too much. We were doing a little too much in that sense. Um, there's a ceiling there that there's not on Baylor, but there's a consistency with the Baylor guards, and there's so many of them that are really impressive. They also yeah, sure. as a team really impressively. I would just say this is the scary Kansas in the sense that it is an elite offensive team. And when Bill self has elite offensive teams, he 
tends to get better defensively. There is a track record defensively. Uh, they've got the bodies for it, by the way. They, have they do the, have, yeah. 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 They just have to continue to gel as a team. And there's new faces along with experience. Um, and I think that this is one of the most complete teams in the country in terms of their, like, one of the points that Fran Fraschilla was making of why Bill Self was so upset with, um, with McCormick, or I don't even, whoever it was, was, was complaining that you shouldn't have to be so worried about your 22 year old center. Well, you can have the luxury of being worried about your 22 year old center. When you have Jalen Coleman lands, who's 25, you have Remy Martin, who's 23, you have Ochai who's 21 or 22. You've got Christian Brown. Who's 20. Like, Dewan Harris is 21. You've got an old team, so you have the luxury of being able to be hard on and worried about your old guys because you're really not worried about the young guys. And, like, whatever Zach Clements does, whatever uh, – if Bobby Pettiford comes back, if Joe Yasifu contributes, yeah. like, that's all gravy. Jalen Wilson contributing, that is all bonus stuff. But you've got a consistency and a leap that Christian Brown and Ochai have taken from a field goal percentage efficiency perspective that's really impressive to go along with the fact that you do always have that bailout button of Remy. Yeah. And it is wild to like to see the numbers, and I was going through them. Remy's taken 7.1 shots per game. He was taking 14.2 at ASU the last two years. He's taking yeah. literally half as many shots. But when he needs to go get a bucket, he can for them. So can Ochai, yeah. so can Christian. It's going to be fascinating. Before we move on, before we move on, I need to make a point about Remy Martin. I don't know which ASU fans might see this podcast. I'm not sure. I don't really care. Um, Gabe, I know you've had to hear a lot from them, just given your line of occupation. This should be evidence, this box score from Remy Martin, that it never was about Remy Martin, that it never, you know, all the discontent, of last year had nothing to do with Remy Martin getting his or not, or him leaving this program because he didn't feel like it was his best way to get his day in the sunshine. Remy Martin only cares about two things, playing good basketball and winning. And the fact that he's been able to completely contort his game to help his team the best he can tells you everything you need to know about Remy Martin, the basketball player. And it should put that to bed. For everybody who bashed him, for everybody who gave him grief about leaving to go play at, by the way, the mecca of basketball, Allen Fieldhouse, and his last opportunity, most likely, because his prospects in the NBA don't look that great, to play major high-level basketball. I think you can shut up now. I would like you to shut up now. Thank you. Yeah, I completely co-sign on that argument. Like, I think it is very apparent that the way he played basketball the last couple of years was enabled by Bobby Hurley, but it was enabled because it was what the two of them both believed was the best way for ASU to win. And yeah. the best way for KU to win is not for Remy Martin to be taking 15 shots per game. It is probably, and I certainly believe this, for him to be taking nine or 10 shots a game. Like, I think he can still take more shots. He can be more aggressive. He can pick his spots better. Um, but the instant offense and the chucking and hoping all of these types of things, the fadeaways and all of that kind of stuff, mm -hmm. it is good in the bailout situations. It's not needed on every possession. And it's not what is happening on every possession yeah. because there's a consistency and there's an offensive structure in place 
to go to Christian Brown, to go to Ochai, to go to David McCormick. And that's what happened. That's what's really good. I just hope we get to see this matchup three times this year. Yeah, and we should, whether it's in March or it's in the Sprint Center in March. Um, we should absolutely see this three times because they're the two best teams in the conference. And I'll say one last thing on Kansas. You know, I'm not wishing for anybody to get COVID. Do not misconstrue what I'm saying. I don't know if it'd be the worst thing in the world for Kansas to have, you know, a game where, you know, Ochai and CB, who are close friends, you know, contact trace, not able Whoa. to play for a game and then have Remy. No, listen to me. And then have Remy have that one game where he can just remind himself that, oh, yeah, in case I have to break the glass, in the case of an emergency, as you said earlier, I'm still that dude and I can still fill it up. I don't think that'd be the worst thing in the world. At some point, there's going to be a 20-point night. Yeah. Like, there has to be. He's, he's shooting at such an efficient clip that if there's a night where other guys aren't going, and that's the thing, is, like, other nights have been – other guys have been going like every and night. probably won't be. Um, and, and the funny thing is, we had that on Saturday. Yeah. Christian Brown was not, was not efficient. Ochai was not efficient. And Remy's, Remy was out with a knee thing. Um, and they didn't need him against George Mason, but what could have been the 20 point Remy game turned into the 20 point Jalen Coleman lands game. So um, that's that. The last thing I will say on the big 12, as we've run almost two hours on this show. We, we hadn't done a pod for a month. I don't think yeah. anyone's complaining. Iowa state big time frauds. They're losing their next four. Their next four. Yes. Do you want I mean, to? They be, so they just beat for context. They earn some respect from you by going toe-to-toe in Hilton with Baylor. Yeah. Pushing them harder than Baylor's been pushed all year, the first team to play them within eight points this season. Then they struggled offensively, mightily, but still beat a top-25 team, given Texas Tech was extremely shorthanded and only had seven guys. I'm not not bearing the lead. I'm trying not to bear the lead. That was not a good performance, even though it was a win over a top-25 team. You still – they go to Oklahoma – then they host, or no, they go to Kansas, host Texas, go to Lubbock to play Texas Tech. Now, when you say that, you're, you're assuming that there is no COVID influence over any of these games. And no. I'm solving you of that, obviously, no. right now, just by putting it out into the air. You think they're losing all four of these? They're, they're yes. If, if the schedule okay. is played as it is laid out through January 18th, they are losing on Saturday against Oklahoma. Oklahoma is a good team. Porter Mosier is instilling his culture. They run good offense. Tanner Groves has been very good. Umoja Gibson has been very good. Jalen Hill has been really good. I'm impressed by Oklahoma. They're losing that game. There's no chance, no chance that Kansas is losing the Jalen Coleman lands revenge game versus Tristan. But it's a Tristan and a revenge game. I know there's no chance they're losing that game. Uh, Iowa state is, has, has the let me get this correct because because facts matter let me get this correct Thank iowa you. state has the 158th ranked offensive efficiency team in the country yeah that that team is not matching score for score with kansas at allen Fieldhouse. that's not happening the next game is texas at home maybe that's winnable on a saturday afternoon it is the most hilton winnable makes a big difference hilton makes a big difference May, we'll see Texas is kind of fig- kind of figuring it out. And then at Texas Tech, they're losing that game because they would have lost last night against a seven-man Texas Tech team. Shot quality had 65% chance for Texas I, I Tech. I understand, to win. Gabe. 
every four or so, every five or so games, you know, because you know what Isaiah Brockington is going to bring to the table. Every night, he's going to night in, night out, going to give you 14, 15, handful of rebounds, play well. When they get another guy to go into double figures, to approach 20, they are legitimately a top 15 team. And, you know, every five or so nights, whether it's, you know, Kunk or it's uh, Travis Hunter or Gabe Kausher or, or Tristan Inaruna, usually one of those guys does do that job. Occasionally they don't, and then they look like they did last night, which in most cases, those will be nights that they lose. But they are not a fraud. They are a good team, a top 20 team. I don't know about that. I think that the, the bottom could fall out on this team. I'll just say that. I'm just putting it out there. So you're you're betting on an inconsistency in the inconsistency because they haven't consistently had a number two score be the same guy. But what they have had is consistency in somebody filling that role. And you're betting on a bucking of that trap. Yeah, pretty much. But this is what this is my thing. This is this is a more extreme version to me of what Northwestern was last year, where Northwestern whoa, got whoa 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 North Northwestern got here's the thing Iowa State elite defensive team I think they're fourth in the country in, yeah I was about to say they they have a yeah, defense that, they are the fourth ranked defensive efficiency team in the country shout out TJ Otzelberger like they they defend their butts off good for them the gauntlet of the big 12 schedule gives them the opportunity where they really only have to win six league games to make the tournament. Like if they go six and 12 and there's six wins, if one or two of them is a Texas or a Texas tech, they could get in. The problem is it is so heavy at the start here where they go Baylor, Texas tech, Oklahoma, KU, Texas, Texas tech, they only play two more, three more ranked teams, but it's KU and Texas back-to-back, and then it's at Baylor at the very end. So they might get beaten up to the point where then they don't get to take advantage of the stretch where they get West Virginia and they get te- Kansas State and they get TCU and they get West Virginia and Kansas State again. Mm-hmm. Like, those are winnable games. They also get the benefit of the fact that the SEC Big 12 Challenge, they're playing Mizzou. So, like, that should be a win. All of these things are to say – there's not much going to be asked of them to make the NCAA tournament. Like if they get to 18, 19 wins, 19 and 10, they're probably going because of the strength of, of the league and the, the cachet of the big 12 brand. I just don't think they're that good. Like the offense is so mind numbingly awful at times. And it's inconsistent. Like you point out, it's inconsistent with the second score. I'm worried about them in that regard. And I, I think that, I think that last night they should have lost. I think they got lucky. I think you're just in love with calling teams frauds. I think you get a lot of joy. No, I'm not. No, you, no, don't lie to me. You like calling Iowa a fraud and Iowa is the inverse of Iowa state. They're elite offensively and they are atrocious. As a matter of fact, I rarely have called Iowa a fraud. I just called them bad. Yeah. And that's different because I, you're not even giving them the credit of being of acting like they're good. I'm saying I understand why people are acting like they're good because defensively they are. Okay. okay. But you were the same person. And this is, this is why you said you like, you like great defense and bad offense better than you like bad, bad defense. No, I didn't say that either. 
I said that I would bet on it. I didn't say I like it more. Well, it's two bad things, but I'm just saying Iowa third in offensive efficiency, 141st in defense. Iowa State, 158th in defense, fourth in offense, fourth and fourth in defense. Like they are, they're almost the same team. Okay. And okay. then they played each other and Iowa State whooped them. So okay. Last last comments on the league. Uh thoughts on Texas. Work in progress. I w- think I was, I think I was a lot closer right about Texas preseason than you were. They're they're 12 and two. Good defense. Good job. They're also worst non-conference strength of schedule adjusted efficiency metric, according to Ken Palm. So uh, that means Mr. Chris Beard banging the table of like this. These are the games that we're going to play at Gonzaga. It's like, all right, sounds good. You're going to play Houston Baptist at home. You're going to play Incarnate Word at home. Like, shout out. I mean, there's there's so many bad Texas schools in the state that you can just pluck to play games against to take auto wins and not really learn much about your team. Um, that's, that's what I'll say about that. So I, I'm not a huge Texas fan, but I think that they are the third or fourth best team in the league still. Like it's, it's Baylor, Kansas, significant drop-off Texas, Texas tech, Iowa state. I think you deliberately said Iowa state last in that group. Um, I almost might pick Oklahoma over Iowa state. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Keep talking. Um, Okay. I think that's a complicit, pretty much two separate podcasts when you really think about it. An hour of each, yeah. Yeah, everything. Um, You don't want to say anything about the Big East, I take it. Uh, Villanova's back. They might be. I mean, beat Seton Hall, you know, good win for you. Um, They crush Creighton. Uh, Creighton is going to be nothing but the occasional splinter for a good team, it would look this year. I'm, I'm sad about the Paul. I'm really sad about the Paul. I'm I'm sad about Liberty. TGF. Yeah. Very disappointing. Liberty Freeman needs to be a name that we hear Kevin Harlan say in the tournament, and I'm a little bit worried about it. I don't think that's happening. I'm a little bit worried about it. The Providence game did not look good. I'm a, first team Poi consideration. That's not a team. I, I meant to say. Uh, all-American consideration, but Empoy was just, you know, that's what I do. Um, still in on Champagne. Give it to me. He's been awesome. He's been tremendous. So That's my Big East thoughts. Nothing on the Champagne American. Champagne has been awesome. Villanova is better than people still think. I mean, I, I owe you uh, a couple quesadillas because of A, Luca Garza, because undefeated. of B, the undefeated um bet which barely barely survived uh by the skin of its teeth because baylor got it done for you um and usc is undefeated by the nature of not playing a ton of games colorado state yeah fair they i mean they're tough they also did not play they're at boise they're at boise state and have san diego state this weekend but i didn't anticipate colorado state being a factor in this i knew nevadev would have them good i didn't think they would be undefeated at this point in the season um, and you won fair and square. I will say that we need to decide the conditions of our bet between Houston and Memphis because Houston is now without their two best players for the rest of the year. And we need to decide whether or not it was Memphis 
is this going to be a push effectively if Houston doesn't win the league or uh, and Memphis doesn't as well? Because it could very easily be like Eastern Carolina or SMU. Um, or are you in debt of one quesadilla if Houston doesn't win? No, if neither one wins, it's a push. Okay. Come on, Memphis. I still think Houston can win the league, just so you know. And I, I, think, I think Memphis can. I Well, I think both can. Like, I think it actually might have gotten in more interesting now. But I, I think it's a little dumb to call out someone's HC poll this week. It's a little dumb to immediately drop them to 23rd after not seeing them play any games, but just knowing the guys are hurt. And then they go out and they win by 17 last night on the road. So um, it's funny to me the disconnect between – Torvik, which has them two, Ken Palm that has them three, and then like the AP that has them 12. I believe that the HC poll has them like 11. Um, I don't know. And that, that can't account for the fact that Marks and Sasser are gone. But we'll see what happens. I mean, I certainly think they will take a dip, and it will be closer than I – it was going to be a, runner, a runaway win for me if those guys were healthy. Um, now it's close. But I'm still, I'm still confident in the Cougars. Good for you. Good for you. A10, shout out. Let's go, Dayton. Obi was back last night. Obi was back in Dayton last night. National champs to celebrate their national championship. Okay. With that very appropriate last words for the show, we're about to start our last semester in college. This is the first episode of however many we got left, but highly encourage you to stick along because it'll probably be pretty fun, I think, I hope. Um, hopefully we don't get canceled again it'd be kind of crazy uh if it happened twice that game picks record is rough for you i mean we just didn't pick games for a while there too so i think it's got an asterisk i don't know i don't think so we were on covid valuable ground i could have made up that was taken from me we were on covid pause Mm -hmm. all right this has been heat chat we'll talk to you when we talk to you Sunday or a Monday, you know that we flex. True. You can never make it more obvious. You checking for the heat, that's cold. That's cold, that's cold. Headed to the top of the top of this. You can never reach these hoes. in the booth and we spin the truth. Aye. We inspire the youth and we get to the loop. You do what it does and we do what it do. We turn to the max and they got you on mute. You. Ooh, flow so high, so you know Aye. I had to run it back. Blazes a ball, and we run it like a running back. Gabe, I try, so you know Aye. we have it from a dead. Turn you in the off, so you know Aye. we ain't no coming back. Now we done with that. <laughs>